Today our gospel lesson is taken from St. Luke's gospel, beginning with the 19th, the 19th chapter, beginning with the 11th verse. Reading in Jesus' name. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank at my coming? I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that every one who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. And let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you this day. Lord, in this gospel lesson, it seems at first glance as if you are indeed a harsh God. But remind us through the message of the gospel that you are generous that you are generous beyond our ability to comprehend. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so generous that you willingly laid your life down upon the cross for our salvation. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can stand in your presence with freedom and with joy because of the generosity which you have poured out upon us through the shedding of your blood. So Heavenly Father, I pray today that you will challenge us, and I pray today that you will comfort us. Comfort us in the knowledge that you have given so much. And may that, Lord, may the, the gospel of grace be our motivation in faithful stewardship and in giving generously. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated today. Well, last week I started a sermon series on generosity, and uh, really it's a sermon series on stewardship. That is an understanding that, that God has blessed us and has given to us so many things, and he has entrusted us with so much, 
And he has given to us the amazing privilege of being stewards or managers of all of his resources. I, I, I actually love to preach on stewardship. Uh, I know that some pastors are af afraid to preach on stewardship, but I believe that, that teaching on stewardship is a way really to liberate people. It is a way to liberate people because then we understand who the owner is, we understand who the king is, we understand who really controls all things, and then we can give, we can give with generosity, knowing who our God is. And being freed by that liberates us to be a people who are generous in every way. Well, last uh, week I said this, you can be generous without love, but you cannot love without being generous. I think that's so true that, that many people are generous, but they're generous in their giving without love. Their hearts haven't been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. So they may give a lot to charity. They might give a lot to the church. Uh, they may even have their name placed on a building because of the donations that they've made. But there's no love. But there's no love. You cannot love without being generous. And this is true of every area of our life. If you love your children, you'll be generous to them, right? If you love your spouse, you'll be generous to your spouse. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be generous in the way you utilize your resources, your time, and even your money. So today we're talking about generosity and biblical stewardship again. And we look today at Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. And through my study of these verses, I've actually come to a clear understanding of biblical stewardship through studying this passage. I've always said this in my, ser in my stewardship sermons, which I still believe with all my heart, but this is always sort of the main point of it. We are not owners of what we have. We are stewards or managers of every resource given to us. So I hope you view your life in that way. I hope that you see yourself not as owner, but as a manager or a steward who is to be faithful with all of the resources that, that have been given to you in your life. We own nothing. God is the owner of all things. The important question, though, is this. I think it's more important than that statement. And uh, most important question in regards to this, are you a faithful steward? Are you a faithful steward of all that God has given to you? And I believe this is one of the main points in our parable today. But after studying Luke 19, 11 through 27, I've come to understand this. This ultimately is the foundation of it all. Faithful stewardship is ultimately about the kingship of Jesus Christ. It is about who is the king and who's the king of your life. That's what stewardship is about. It's about understanding who the king is and knowing the king and understanding what the king has done for you to bring to you the gift of his redemption in Jesus Christ. 
I believe the amount of money you put into the offering plate is only secondary to a proper understanding of who Jesus is as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you understand that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, giving will, will not be an issue, it won't be a problem because you know who your king is and you know what your king has provided for you. So it's not a problem. But if you fail to recognize who Jesus is as king, then you'll never be generous in any area of your life because your life will be completely turned in upon itself, only concerned about self and not about what the king desires and what the king wants and what the king's plan is for his kingdom. So if you understand who the king is and if you understand who you are, giving is not a problem. So we go to the parable now, verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable very interesting. This is what caught me off guard. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This parable in Luke 19 immediately precedes Luke's passion narrative. This parable comes right before the triumphal entry on the first Palm Sunday just before Good Friday, he tells this parable, and that is significant. In Luke's narrative, this is the last piece of teaching that he gives to his disciples. So I ask this question, for what purpose did Jesus go into Jerusalem? Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? I hope you know why he went to, the, to Jerusalem. Uh, so I asked this question, did he go to Jerusalem to establish his rightful seat on the throne as king of Judah in Israel? Did he go to Jerusalem to conquer the Romans, to vanquish the Romans from the land? Did he go to Jerusalem as a political savior, as a political revolutionary? Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago? His followers assumed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They assumed that Jesus would use all of the popularity that he had amassed to finally, once and for all, overthrow the Roman occupiers and to take his seat, which, by the way, was rightfully his as a son of David, upon the throne and to rule as a political savior and a political leader. That was the assumption they were under. We are going to Jerusalem. We are marching to Jerusalem so that finally we can be done with these Romans and have our land back for ourselves. Now, Jesus did most certainly enter Jerusalem to take a throne, but it was not the earthly throne of earthly kings. Jesus' throne was a cross. His throne was a cross. And his royal chamber 
a borrowed tomb. Not at all the type of arrangements the people had anticipated. When Jesus was arrested, taken captive, and crucified, his followers were devastated. They were devastated by the type of throne that he took. In his suffering and death, his closest followers thought that he had failed. When in fact, he had conquered, he had defeated our greatest and most formidable enemies of sin, death, hell, and the devil. But everybody thought he failed when in fact he won the victory through the cross. You see, the Romans were small potatoes in comparison to humanity's true enemies. For God, the Romans were nothing. He would do away with the Romans, eventually. So Jesus proceeded to tell this parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Luke 19, 12. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So ask the question in the parable, who was the nobleman? Who was the nobleman in the parable? Well, Jesus is the nobleman. What does it mean that he went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return? What does that mean? He went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Actually, the explanation of the scope of this parable of the entire scope of this parable from beginning to end is summarized for us in the second article, what we call the second article of the Apostles' Creed. What does it mean that he went into this far land to receive for himself a kingdom? It simply means this. Jesus, as King of Kings, was crucified. He died and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And here comes the harsh part of the parable. And from thence he will come again to do what? To judge the living and the dead. This parable covers the time from his passion, the cross, to his second coming. Jesus is the nobleman. He went into a far country. He journeyed to the cross. He entered a tomb for three days. He descended into hell. He descended there in his exalted state to march victorious as King of kings and Lord of lords over hell itself. He went to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he will come again to execute judgment upon the earth. That's what it means that the noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. He's coming again. The king is coming. And then we see in Luke 19... 
verses 13 through 14. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. What's a mina? Well, it's a measurement. It's a measurement in relationship to money. So calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But listen to this, and does this sound familiar? But his citizens hated him. They hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This reminds us of people's reception of Jesus during his earthly ministry, also during the ministry of the early church. Remember, they rejected the apostles' ministry. What did they do to the apostles? All of them died terrible martyrs' deaths because they were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because they preached the gospel, they died terrible martyrs' deaths. They rejected the king. They rejected the message of the early church, and it is still happening today. People continue to reject Christ. John 1.11 says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They did not receive him. So a key part of understanding the reign and rule of Christ is people's vehement rejection of it. People don't want Jesus as their king. They want to be the king of their own lives. They want to rule and reign and have control over everything which the king has blessed them with. They will not submit to his lordship. And the same is true of many people within the church. Many people may be attracted to some of the things that Jesus said and maybe some of the things that Jesus did, but they do not want Jesus as their king. They might find some inspiration from Jesus' life and teachings, but ultimately they want to be the king of their own lives. The same is true of many in the church. And it's proven in unfaithful stewardship among God's people. It's proven in unfaithful stewardship, even among people in the church. For many, when they pray, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come, do they really mean it? Do they really desire the reign and the rule of Christ in their life? Let's get into the heart of the parable, verses 15 through 26. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. In other words, what had they done with the resources that had been given to them? The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has, ten, has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina. 
which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at the coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to those, to the one who has ten, the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are a people called by the King of Kings as servants, entrusted, entrusted as managers of his interests. Not of our own interests, but of his interests. Did you know that the wealth and the resources that we have received in this life are not our own? That the king owns everything? We are called to be faithful managers of that which is given to us. The first servant took the measurement of money and earned ten more in his investment. The second servant took the noble man's money and invested it to earn five more. The other servant did nothing with what was given to him. How much has been given to you in this life? How much has been given to you? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? We have been given responsibility over, over an incredible uh, investment of our Savior. One of uh, the primary responsibilities of stewardship is the gospel itself. The scriptures talk about being stewards of, of the mystery or of the gospel. That we've been entrusted with this message. Are we being faithful stewards of the message entrusted to us? Are we being generous with the message of the gospel? Another area of responsibility is the ministry of the gospel through the church. I truly do believe that the church is God's plan for his kingdom to be established and to grow throughout the world. So you have been entrusted with a local congregation through which the word of God is preached, through which the sacraments are administered for the salvation of the lost. So you've been entrusted with the church. So I ask you, are you living as a faithful steward of your congregation? Are you investing yourself into your church? And do not forget that financial contributions are a vital part of the faithful stewardship of the local church. But so is your contribution of time and your God-given abilities. 
Some may give generously of money, but they're not giving of time. Some are giving of time, but they're not giving financially. Others give neither time nor finances. The bottom line is this, who is your king? Who is your king? On the screen, you'll see three circles. To your left is a circle representing a person. Each of the circles actually represent a person. The first person, you can see that there's a throne inside the circle. That represents the core of our being. Who is on the throne of the first person on your left? Well, there's an S there, and that S stands for self. Stands for self. And outside of the life of the person is Christ. Christ has not entered into that person's life yet. But through the message of the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ enters and takes the throne of the person's life. And self lives as a servant of God's will, of God's plans. But what happens in my life every day is this. I end up reasserting my place on the throne. Still a Christian, I'm still saved, but I end up assuming a position of authority that does not belong to me, it belongs only to Jesus Christ. I might even pray the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, but I really want my will to be done in my life. So I ask you today, which circle represents your life? Christ in your life? If he's in your life, who's on the throne? Who's ruling and reigning in your life? Which circle would you like to represent your life? You want Christ to rule and reign? You want him to ultimately be the Lord of your life? Or do you really want to continue on the throne of your life? So I ask you this question, how well does it go when you are on the throne of your life? How's that working for you? How's that working for you? Is it working out all right? Are you like me, ready to step down, sick of being the king of my life, ready to step down so that he can be the king of kings and the lord of lords, in my life. How is this done? It's done by repentance. Daily repentance and contrition, it's a part of the Christian life. And by repentance comes freedom. Freedom. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just. This is how generous he is. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is liberty. This is freedom. To have Christ reigning and ruling over every aspect of our lives. If you know Christ is king and Lord, you will be generous 
a generous steward in every way. You'll look at your family differently. And I've been convicted there. You'll look at your work differently. You'll look at your church differently. And yes, you'll look at your money differently, realizing, no, this money is not mine. It belongs to the king. And I have been called as a faithful steward over every resource given to me. You will excel in the grace of giving. You'll discover giving as an adventure. It gives you opportunity to trust God. Is it hard? Is it difficult? Does it take sacrifice? Yes, but it's an adventure. Because when you give, you're saying, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to make it, but I trust you. I trust you to provide all things. To embark on giving is an adventure in which you learn to trust in God, to provide for all that you need. There's a member of our congregation, Bob Wicks. I invite Bob to come up now. And Bob is going to share his testimony of this adventure of giving and of the provision that is provided for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Bob. So early on in my Christian experience, we learned about tithing and it became just an automatic part. We have always viewed life as a grand adventure. And the adventure really began to grow when we felt God directing us into full-time ministry. We were involved in a small denomination, had their own seminary. It was a very intensive two-year program so intensive there was no time for anyone to work. So they expected you to be able to provide for the tuition and two years of living expenses upon admission or registration of the school. So we made our plans and of course they didn't work out very well. And the time came for school year to start and we faced three challenges. One was we didn't have the money for either tuition or for the two years of living expense. The second challenge was we didn't even know whether we were going to go. We hadn't even been accepted into the school. And the third challenge was we had no way to get there. We had no money. When we were praying one time, the Lord spoke to us and basically said to us, I will put you where I want you and I'll provide all your needs. Shortly thereafter, an opportunity came for us to move down to San Francisco where the school was at virtually no cost. We were asked to drive another student's U-Haul truck down there. So we had no place else to go at that point. Our job was ending where we were. We had no place to live. The only option was, well, I guess we'll drive your truck down to San Francisco. So we did. We arrived in San Francisco 
still not knowing whether or not we had been accepted into the school. We went to their administrative offices and we walked into the youth department, literally just as they were walking out of the meeting where they accepted us into the school. We were excited except that we had to tell them, gee, this is really great, but we don't have the money for tuition and we don't have the money to live for two years. They told us, well, sorry, but if you don't have the money, we won't be able to admit you. We had two weeks before registration and the school started and we prayed and we wondered and were expecting, hoping for some kind of miracle which didn't seem to happen. So having nothing else again to do, we went to registration. We showed up expecting them to say thanks but no thanks and be turned away. They asked us, do you have the money? We said, no. I said, okay. It turned out that the tuition had been provided through some unusual circumstances. We said, well, we don't have the money to live on. He says, well, do you trust God? And we said, yes. For two years in that program, we saw God provide all of our needs through every conceivable way that you can imagine. Sometimes anonymously, sometimes known, usually at the last minute, and often to the exact amount. It was exciting. It just furthered that sense of adventure in walking with God. We spent eight years in full-time ministry with that organization, with that denomination, but we realized that our passion, our real calling, was working with youth and young adults. And being a very small denomination, there really wasn't paid positions for that. So we realized that we were going to have to leave full-time work if we were going to pursue our sense of calling. So we resigned. And now we were again without job, without a house, without a home, with nothing. I got a job, but we realized shortly thereafter that the job wasn't enough. I wasn't earning enough to pay the bills. It turned out to be about half of what we needed. But because of that experience at seminary, we were ready for the adventure. And it took about three or four years before my income caught up with our expenses. And again, we saw God providing incredible ways, consistently when we needed it, rarely how we expected it. But there was one period of time when we were working with a, in a small church and uh, was able to get a job, part-time job, doing the bookkeeping for the church. And the leaders of the church, knowing our financial situation, told us to stop tithing as a way of saving money. We obeyed. But during that year, if you will, we started experiencing unusual, extraordinary expenses. And at the end of that year, when I did my kind of bookkeeping, I saw that the amount of those unexpected, extraordinary expenses was ex almost exactly what the tithe would have been. So we started tithing again. And we have been through incredible ups and downs. We have had times of abundance, 
We've had other times of loss and want. And throughout all of that time, we have remained faithful in that giving. It has been a grand adventure, one that I wouldn't trade for anything. Over the years, we have lived in four states. We've lived in nine cities. And we've gotten to travel to 10 countries in opportunity of ministry. And throughout that time, God has ultimately been the source of that provision. Sure, many times it's been through the jobs and the abundance that I've been able to have by job growth and by job approval, I guess. But it's always been a realization that God is the source of our supply. Whether it's jobs or gifts or whatever it may be. As we're approaching tax time, it struck me that we pay taxes, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with how they're spent or not, well, we pay taxes basically because it funds those things that we alone cannot do. It's the basis of community. And whether you like to pay them or not, you still do. We kind of concluded that tithes, if you will, is our kingdom taxes. Our tax money comes out the first from our paychecks, whether we like it or not. And we found that we applied the same principle. Our tithes come out the very beginning, not the end, but they're the first that we give because it's our kingdom taxes. If we see God as the controller and the ruler of our lives, then that giving becomes part of that adventure, part of that opportunity to see how is God going to meet all of our needs? How is he going to allow us to do the things that he wants us to do? It is a grand adventure, and I wouldn't trade it for a million bucks. Giving is an adventure. I know that Katie and I, we've experienced the same provision of God through our seminary journeys and even now. Those who are not faithful stewards really do miss out on the adventure of God providing for them. And today I do want to share with you some important information as we talk with the executive committee um, about the financial situation within the church, uh, we are behind. But I think we have enough resources. I think we have more than enough resources. Here are some figures that I'd like to give to you as a matter of prayer and as a challenge to you to experience God's goodness and God's abundance. First of all, I'd like to share that 50% of our membership gives over 97% of our income. 50% gives over 97% of our income. The remaining 50% give less than 3% of our income. 
So let that sink in. Let that sink in. Are you a faithful manager? Are you a faithful steward of all that God has given to you? Generosity and faithful stewardship is about kingship. Who is your king? Stewardship is a perspective in ownership. God owns everything. I am simply a steward or a manager entrusted with God's riches. Therefore, I am to be faithful in what God has entrusted to my care. But never forget this. Never forget this. Generosity starts with God. It starts with God. He is the one who is so generous towards us. He has given to us so much beyond our ability to comprehend. And because he's generous to us, it's not difficult for us to be generous to him. Another part of this is prayer. And I do believe that we need to be praying fervently for our congregation and for the future of our church and of our ministry. So let's take some time right now to pray for Maple Park. Would you please bow your heads with me in prayer? And would you spend a moment just individually reflecting upon your life and asking the Lord what would he have you to do with the information that's been given today? Maybe it's an opportunity for repentance. Maybe it's an opportunity for thanksgiving for all that God has given to you. Maybe it's an opportunity to pray for the needs of others. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so generous to us. Every good gift that we have received has come from you. Make us your faithful servants. Make us your faithful stewards. Heavenly Father, I do pray in the name of Jesus that the gospel of forgiveness, that the reality that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. I pray that that reality would liberate people within this congregation to get off the throne and to allow you to be the King of Kings.
and the Lord of Lords over every aspect of our lives so that we can live the adventure, so that we can live in the freedom of knowing that you provide all things at all times for us. So give to this church what is needed. Provide for Maple Park. May we be a mighty influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.